Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and this is the analysis.news and our show reality asserts itself. Please don't forget the donate button. Please sign up for our email list, subscribe on YouTube. That's of course, if YouTube allows more subscriptions because it seems like they're suppressing them, but that's another story. Share from the podcast, whatever podcast platform you might be listening on and so on and so on. I'll be back in just a few seconds with Jane McAlevey, the organizer's organizer. So this is the final, I think I said this before, that this is the final, this probably is the final, at least for now, segment of my series of interviews with Jane McAlevey, and we're going to talk about the power of the strike. Jane is the author of several books, including No Shortcuts and Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, and if you haven't watched the other segments, you really should go back and start at part one, which is Jane's biographical story, and then we get kind of more into the organizing issues. Uh, as you may know, if you have watched the others, Jane organizes and teaches organizing to organizers, sometimes as many as 10,000 at a time. Thanks for joining us again, Jane. Always a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk to you for a little while. So, so if I understand correctly, the strike is very powerful and maybe at, at the very least, there's three different ways to talk about it. One would be something you teased at the end of the last segment, that in gaining recognition, strike is, is a legal and perhaps very good way to force recognition. Second is strike as a weapon in terms of the bargaining uh, over specific contracts uh, and the fight with employers. But also there's the, you know, the role of the strike in the larger political societal uh, for example, you know, closing down the harbors over a political issue. But so start wherever you want to start, but maybe start where you left off on how, the role it could play in organizing. Yeah, I was going to say, I hope you remind me about what that point was, because uh, but you just did, which is perfect. So uh, you meant I'm like, you know, like a million miles, you know, from the last conversation each time. And that happens almost every day right now. It's so crazy out there. Um so yeah, the three ways that you just raised the strike, and I think they're actually in um, a good order. So we should we should take them uh, one at a time. The first is what we call a recognition demand backed up by a supermajority strike. So again, this is U.S. labor law, um, but there's a lot of talk, as we know, for a long time. You know that it's really hard to organize in the United States. You know, it's, it's a million excuses, in my opinion, by a lot of people who should just be doing organizing and aren't. They got an excuse a minute. Um, meanwhile, the country is, you know, burning down. So, uh, or the planet's burning down and the democracy at the same time. So, um, what people will say a lot is, you know, the National Labor Relations Board and the process connected to the National Labor Relations Board you know, stacked against us. It's terrible. It's unfair. By the way, that is all true, right? If you've listened to the other segments, you will have heard me saying how outrageous it is to try and help workers win um, a simple demand to form a union in the United States. It's like you'd think you were, I don't know, trying to rip off the biggest bank in Wall Street or something, which is basically what they think, right? That's, that is what organized workers represent to Wall Street. It's gone after the piggy bank. So I guess it makes sense. Um, they fight really hard. So there's been a debate in the United States really quickly about 
you know, a handful, really one union, Unite Here, and I respect this position, uh, has taken the position for many years that they will only do what we call recognition campaigns. They've like forsworn uh, doing National Labor Relations Board elections as a general rule. Now, which union is that? Uh, the Hotel and Casino Workers Union and sort of Hospitality Workers Union. Really smart union. Um, they're one of the unions that continues to organize and win, and they actually do massive strikes and they win, right? So we're, we're in the small camp of unions that are actually really still organizing um, and striking and winning really amazing standards. I mean, if you are a, uh, you know, if you're um, a house uh, cleaner, in Las Vegas on the Strip, which is where that union, one of the many places that that union represents workers, you are you have a better health care plan than than the registered nurses who deliver the care um, in Las Vegas. Uh, I, I made a, I made a film called Lost in Las Vegas, which people can find on the documentary section of the website, and it's this crazy thing where these two guys that do a Blues Brothers routine, and I set up them interacting with different people. Uh, in Vegas to decide whether they want to move there. And one of them is the, is the unionization story that you talk about. It's kind of a quirky film. But yeah, Vegas, for being the mecca of neoliberal crazy shit, is also one of the most organized places in the country. Yeah. Well, that's because the whole economy is basically the strip, you know, and tourism. So you've got this really great union. Um, and it's, you know, I think of those jobs the way we think of uh, what a great, you know, construction trades job or a manufacturing job was, you know, decades back. Why? Why do they have great standards in 2021, 2022? Um, the kind of standards that a person can retire on, can raise a family on. Why? Because of, because of what I just said, because they are still using the power of the strike, right? I mean, my book, No Shortcuts, basically analyzes, like those of us still doing supermajority strikes have the capacity to keep winning the kind of quality of life that we think of associated with an older generation of kind of manufacturing jobs. Um, so the issue is unionization or not unionization. And then the sub issue is good union or not so good union, right? So they're a very good union and they took a position many years ago, certainly in Vegas on the strip where I had the chance to work alongside nearby, right? I was running a different union, SIU at the time. Um, and we were, I was sent in to do the unionization of the healthcare sector and the hospital sector, which was not very unionized at that point. Um, so, you know, and I began to realize that they had, they had, they had come in part from the strip to this, the Las Vegas strip, to the position that the national relations process was too stacked against them and too unfair. And it kind of is. Now, the strategies for how to win them, right? I'm still a national liberal relations board type of person. Uh, and that maybe is because I've had the pleasure of continuing to win NLRB elections, different sector, different time, but I respect their position. So what, what does this mean, the recognition demand for strike? It means that you, you still have to show a majority. Let me just start by saying you still need to present, you know, a majority, um, of workers signing membership cards saying that they want to be part of the union. So that is still part of what we call a recognition demand. Um, but you can go right to the CEO or the head of the corporation. You can say, we have, we have a majority of workers in your facility have signed union authorization cards and would like to uh, unionize. And we are requesting that you legally recognize the union today upon showing of a majority of workers saying that they want the union. So it's not a way around majority, you know, the majority of workers want this, right? Which is important to say. But what's really important is it's really hard to do and you have to actually be able to 
run a majority strike usually to win a recognition demand. Because what's the employer going to say? Uh, no, right? I mean, the vast majority of employers, when they're confronted with, hey, would you like to have the union make an unfortunate decision to say no and then start the war? What Unite Here had done is said, but what I would do in those moments, right? I was trained as young organizer, which probably we covered earlier, to make the recognition demand with a majority card cards in your hand of the workers. Boss says no, then we're going to wind up, in my case, usually to retreating to, okay, screw it. We're going to take you on a National Relations Board election and get this over with, right? What other unions have decided, like Unite Here, is it's too complicated. And they're, you know, in the case of Vegas, moving tens of thousands, some of those casinos are massive, right? So they understand all the ways the boss is going to twist the campaign. Um, and they are not going to, they're going to just fight it out until they get the recognition from the employer and avoid the National Relations Board. So what happened uh, a week and a half ago or two weeks ago now in California was a very large unit of workers making that, resurrecting that idea, which was 17,000 academic researchers in the University of California system up and down the coast, 17,000 of them took the approach of demanding recognition. Now, a much softer target, right? A University of California is already heavily unionized. Um, you know, it's in a blue state. It's a much more union-friendly state. But 17,000 academic workers made a demand across all the campuses to be join, you know, to join the union, to have another 17,000. That's going to take our numbers, since that's also my employer. It's going to take our numbers upwards of 50,000 or so. Don't uh, quote me on that yet. But it's large, and 17,000 is a giant unit. That's the, that's the kind of number we need to start really rebalancing power is like 15,000, 10,000. Think of a big old auto plant, right? 6,000, 7,000 at a time. So um, they made the recognition demand of the employer of the University of California system, and the boss said no. And the 17,000 workers said, all right, that's the way you want to play. They took a strike vote. They actually got a majority. I would call it a not a simple, not a super, but like a, a you know, 65%, I think was the turnout. That begins my threshold for a definition of supermajority. It's better at like 70, 75, or 80%, but 65% was enough uh, as a turnout number. And then it was high 90s of authorizing the actual strike, right? So if you're really looking at numbers, that's a ser that's a serious enough number. That employer took them seriously realized that heading into the grading period, right, this was not done at a bad time, it was done at a smart time. Um, a lot of the academic researchers, these are students across the campus who do all the work at this point, like, you know, they are doing the work of the university. Um, and they... So for, for, for workers that are in an unorganized situation and want to get organized with this kind of method, one, you do need, a, a, you know, a union to work with, and two, does this have to be done in secret? Well, uh, the recognition demand was most certainly not secret, right? They started- right. No, but the, the, lead, the lead up to it. You know, I mean, I don't think it ever lasts, I don't think we ever get, I mean, we, we always try and start campaigns, what we call quietly. Um, I'm not sure I use the word secret, uh, just because maybe I don't believe in them, but- um, we, we, we start quietly. I mean, the longer that a not yet unionized workplace can, can get their work done before management is tripped into the campaign or knows about it, it's a goal of organizing that you want to keep the campaign quiet for as long as you can. Um, and depending on your approach, you know, you might 
trigger management knowing it right away. I mean, for those of us who still do something called door knocking, house calling, we call it, um, where we knock on thousands of workers' doors without being invited um, in a hard campaign just to show up and start having the conversation. You know, I mean, I remember being a young organizer and our list wasn't great. And I knocked on a door of a middle level manager. Well, the campaign was outed pretty much right there, right? Like, boom. So you work very hard to keep a campaign as quiet as you can. But I assume, and I think winning organizers assume, boss knows we're there. Um, and the boss is going to know that we're there. Uh, so it's more about the work before. Well, that's going to be such a long discussion. We got to get back to strikes because the strategy there is around. Um, from my view, I was conditioned, taught, mentored, not to like actually move the membership cards until we already knew from earlier structure tests that we were going to be at majority. It's it's the moving of the membership cards where you usually get tripped up and the boss knows it because now you've got lots of workers passing authorization cards around. Managers are seeing people working furtively in a break room or they see them walking together to a you know cafe across the street or whatever it is. So the actual movement of the we're going to authorize a union election kind of a card. We want to form a union. It, the way I was taught, we don't move until we actually know that we've got the vast majority, supermajority, of what we call the organic leaders. And your listeners will have to go back and listen earlier to know what an organic leader means. But in our training, my training, once we've identified the leaders, once we've gotten a majority of the informal organic leaders, the most trusted workers in each unit, ready to roll, and we've built an organizing committee of those informal leaders in each area, that's when we're gonna to start to move the cards because we're gonna move them fast as hell Right, because then you're up against the boss. The boss is going to find out you want to get to a supermajority membership as fast as you can. That can happen when you take the time to do the correct identification of the leaders. Then you work to recruit the leaders in each unit, in each shift. And then they form what's called the OC, the organizing committee. And when they say, we're ready to go in all the big units and the small units, they're ready. Then it's time to, you know, move a petition or the union authorization cards. Either one of them. And will will unions, if there is a strike for recognition, uh, will unions pay strike pay? Will they support workers at this stage? Oh, you know, for a lot of unions right now, no. I mean, not not even at that stage, not at all. I mean, you know, if we get into it, what? Yeah, really. I mean, most strikes that I've actually been involved in, no one's getting strike pay, or if they're getting strike pay, they're getting a couple hundred dollars a week. Um, and that's, that's, that's a reflection. It's not true with 1199 New England, right? My home local that trained me, there's a big, lovely strike fund that every worker pays into. Most unions in the United States don't even have strike funds anymore. And that's a fact. And it's, you know, it's a reflection, uh, both of the problem uh, and the crisis and how the hell did we get here? Right? So the Teamsters still have a huge strike fund. The United Auto Workers still have a huge, the sort of legacy unions, some of them still have very large strike funds. Um, though they're probably getting depleted. Uh, but a whole lot of unions, including some of the very biggest unions in the United States of America, don't even and maybe never even had one. SEIU got rid of their strike fund. SEIU got rid of That's crazy. That's crazy. To tell you're you're essentially telling the employers you'll never strike. Yeah. Or you or you'll never win one. I mean, anyway, it's you know, that's 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 why I wrote No Shortcuts, right? I mean, I sort of analyze in that book uh this very dilemma, right? So I will say as an example, when I um, was running SEIU in Nevada, uh, the very first thing I did when I got there uh, was very first, one of the very first. First thing was 
kick out a union buster, hold to win against two decert. You know, there's a there's a chaos when I was first getting to Vegas. But once we had won a couple of really very big campaigns using all the methods that we've been describing in this interview and that we teach in the online courses, um, probably within seven or eight months of being there, I don't remember it now exactly, uh, I went to the executive board and said, so there's never been a strike fund here. It's been mostly a public sector union, so they didn't think that they needed a strike fund. We were organizing every hospital in the private sector, which we would go on to right, have the highest union density in the United States of America um, at the end of that campaign. And I said, well, the private sector workers have the right to strike. They're going to need a strike fund. Why don't we call it a strike and defense fund? And then the money coming from both sectors can be used not just for a strike. If you're in the public sector, it can be used to pick up people on buses and go to a huge action, right, at the to go after a county commissioner or something like that. So, and then we took it to a full membership vote. And in the act of taking a member-wide referendum on whether or not to increase the sort of per capita tax and how much money should go to the strike fund, it was in, okay, I love doing those kind of votes because it's really about what kind of union do you want to have? That decision to move that referendum in the union was like, for me, opening up what's one of the most meaningful and powerful and beautiful conversations you can have, which is looking at workers and say, what kind of union do you want to build? The one you built has never had a strike. Uh, is it time for us to think about striking and the preparations for that? Heck yes. By the time we took the first strikes in Nevada, by the way, we hardly had the strike fund at all. It had only been, we'd only been collecting it. <coughs> Excuse me. We'd only been collecting it for a very brief period of time uh, but what happened was because we had started it, because the rank and file members actually agreed to form and join the 1199 National Strike Fund. So at SEIU, the strike fund that exists is still controlled by the 1199 locals. It was part of the merger agreement. So there exists a small set of unions inside of this big national union who control, who have and control the old inherited strike fund from the old union 1199 pre-merger. So we made a decision, which was an affront to the national union, I would learn later, sorry. Uh, we made a decision to take a membership vote to have the members in Nevada join into, which no one had done in a very long time, right? Like proactively decide we're gonna join into the strike fund. What that meant was we got an immediate commitment at the first strike of like 15, I forget what the amount was, but I blew it up in a big poster during the strike votes to show that even though we were just early investors in the strike fund, the the eleven and nine healthcare workers around the country understood having Las Vegas hospitals, which is the highest profit hospitals in the for-profit system unionized was going to be a good for everyone. So they were ready to give us a grant essentially from the strike fund, right? So anyway, many unions don't have them and 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 we only paid out, I, th I think it was 225 a week. Um, and you had to you had to pick it for that, right? We had a rule. You had to pick it to get your strike pay. You can't just like strike doesn't mean you just go home and take a break. Strike means you're on the picket line at your shift. You have to picket your shift, your normal shift if you're striking. Right. Okay, so let's let's go to you've told us in a previous segment the story of the Vegas organizing yeah. and and the strike I believe we went into. Yeah. Uh, in to talk about what it takes to organize a winning strike in a large plant uh, or hospital. Talk about another strike that you were involved with. Well, I mean, the first strike I was involved in was in New England, uh, and it was the largest nursing home strike in the history of the United States of America. That was sort of where I learned. That was where I learned and cut my teeth um, and began to understand the new world I had entered in my early 30s. 
Um, I think it was 78 nursing homes across two states at the time, um, multi-state coordinated campaign um, where we did have a strike fund um, and paid out strike funds to those workers. And that was, uh, I, 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 don't, I mean, there were, there were many strikes. The, the, the winning element to a strike, the winning element, one, do you have the organic leaders identified and building their union? Like that's always going to be number one. You simply cannot get to a supermajority strike without what we call the organic leaders. I've never gotten to a supermajority without the identified organic leaders. Those are those very key people, the informal, most respected people. Can I just interject for people that don't have any experience with unions? If I'm un if I'm understanding it correctly, the alternative approach is it's all the staff. You got this paid staff; they do everything, and everyone else is supposed to say yes. And 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 most people are have by this point hate most of the bloody staff anyway. Uh, what you're talking about is quite a different participatory model. Yeah, deeply, and it's it's what I think of as just good organizing. And then I got to give it all these names to distinguish it from things that people call organizing that really isn't organizing, right? That's the dilemma. Um, but so, you know, it's the fundamental is, are a supermajority of the workers going to walk off? And in the United States, I wanted to find supermajority for strike purposes, which I do in no shortcuts, as 90% or greater. I've never had success on any strike with anything less than that. And 100% is better. The Los Angeles teachers, when they went on strike, were 100% out. In Chicago, the Chicago teachers, so that was 34,000 out in Los Angeles, 100%. In Chicago, in their most recent strike, which was 2019, right before the pandemic, right, they, they started the big strikes again in 2012. By their 2019 strike, which was, a, which was an even more beautiful strike in some ways because they did it collaboratively with the SEIU local union in Chicago, which had the sort of cooks and cleaners and bus drivers and um, not the teachers. And it was like they finally built solidarity and actually went out together, which, you know, hello, labor movement. That's what we need to be doing, right? Like actual old fashioned solidarity. Um, and because it's going to create more of a crisis. If you don't know, the, you know, we learned in the West Virginia strike, you know, part of what shut the West Virginia education system down was when the school, the teachers went to the school bus drivers and they understood the power analysis. It's a rural state. If the bus drivers go out with us, they can open the schools all they want. Ain't no kid getting to the school, right? And that that's a fact, which I've written about in the West Virginia teacher strike. They made it not the West Virginia teacher strike. They made it the West Virginia education strike. Um, in Chicago, back to that story in 2019, there was a moment that was uh, almost funny where the news media, you know, very conservative, Chicago, whatever, super conservative as it is most places or super anti-union um, local press was challenging whether or not like they were putting out, the boss was putting out that lots of people were crossing and coming to work. So the media did like a retrospect later looking at trying to prove how many of these people were actually crossing the picket line and that they didn't have that much support. And I believe the number was 97 out of 29,000 people. Like after an extensive review by people whose interest it was to look like they had all these workers crossing, were so humbled because it turned out like 97, again, I'm, I might be off by a couple of numbers, but it was like, Less than 100 people out of almost 30,000 had ever crossed one day of the strike. And that was people who wanted to show that there were a lot of what we call scabs, right? People who were crossing the picket line. They couldn't find them. Know why? They're not there. So the way you're going to win a strike is starting with 
can you get those kind of numbers to walk off the job united together? And will they stay united off the job? That's one. Second, have you done the unbelievably important spade work in the broader community? I mean, the strikes that I've been involved in are in the healthcare and education sector. They're what I call the mission-driven sectors of the economy. Educators, as we know, who are under the gun right now by the right wing. I mean, educators and healthcare workers uh, share that they're in a very different relationship to the people who are using their services than an auto worker. I'm not saying that an auto worker has less connections to their community, but it's a very different relationship to the production, right, or the output. Like... I always say for healthcare workers and educators where parents walk in, the families walking in, it's like, we don't all just walk in and be like, hey, that's my car you're making. You know, I don't like the way that looks. In fact, I think that the, you, you missed a spot on the bottom of the car. Could you go back in and do that? Wait, let me show you a different way to do it. Like that's literally what mission-driven workers are up against. The production process is the community. So you damn well better have done very serious and real and deep and meaningful. And that's what we were talking about in the last show. That's the whole worker organizing, right? What is your approach to the broader community? Is it through staff calling up ministers last minute, begging for support? Not gonna work. Um, or is it a deep connection that you've already got established because the workers themselves are deeply connected to the community, right? That's the approach to it. But in a, in a, in a kind of mission-driven scenario for a strike, like healthcare workers or educators, childcare workers, et cetera, public sector work, public service workers, right? You got to have the public ready to stand with you or the boss. So, so what, are the things, what are the things you're saying then? If you're going to strike, strike to win. And if you're saying to yourself, shit, that could take years, you're saying, well, then take the years. Yeah, but I, no, but I'm at, at, I, I, ooh, yeah, but it doesn't take years. This is the thing about good organizing. It doesn't take years. And this is something that I have to speak to all the time when I'm doing sort of trainings and public talks. I mean, every campaign that I've had the pleasure of winning, the longest duration anywhere uh, that I spent was Vegas four years at the end, but the first year was kind of getting ready. The last year was sort of trying to get, you know, Obama across the finish line, the early 08, 07 years before we realized, you know, uh, audacity and hope and where those things were went out the window. But anyway, um, back in 2007, when the choices were like always as they are not great, he cer certainly seemed like the best choice. So a lot of the last year there was Nevada had just become a swing state. It was the early caucus state. A lot of the last year was consumed with that election because all eyes were on South Carolina and Nevada because they had never been considered early caucus states before, right? They got bumped up to bring in black people in South Carolina and Latinos in Nevada, big political process in the U.S., to put where they realized, oh, Iowa and New Hampshire go first, like the whitest, smallest states in America. Anyway, so that 2007, that last year there, uh, was consumed with how do we actually turn Nevada blue? It had been voting for Republicans for 20 years. So um, good organizing does not take forever. Good organizing can happen a hell of a lot more quickly. The campaign in Philadelphia that we've talked about, at most two years from start to finish to organize seven hospitals across the fifth largest city in the country. Like when you have a method, now I'm not I'm saying it's not ubiquitous, right? I mean, I've lost some campaigns along the way, but not a lot, to be honest, like really not a lot. Um, and not a lot for a reason, which is uh, we're dogged in the methods and the methods work. And that's, you know, I mean, if you're up against a military junta and someone starts gunning you down with a machine gun, okay, it's a different discussion. But if you're talking about Canada, the United States, you know, a whole bunch of countries all over the world, but let's just stick with 
United States, these methods have proven over and over and over to work. They're hard. You have to trust the workers. You have, let me just say it again. You have to trust the workers, the ordinary intelligence of workers. And then you have to have a method. It is not go grab any card. It is you start with that incredible discipline of we've got to first identify who are the most respected worker leaders. Many of them won't want a union at first. So step two is, can we actually, you know, help them come to see that actually forming unions is going to be terrific, um, no matter what they've read in the mainstream media or heard on Fox News or wherever they've heard it. Um, that's the education process um, with the organic leaders. And if you've got a majority of wards, units, depending what you call them, shifts, right? Because we're looking at all of that. If you get to the point where you've got a super majority of the real identified leaders, trusted leaders, whether they're in a unionized shop or a not yet unionized shop, whether you're building towards a recognition and, and unionization campaign or building towards a strike in a long time shop, if you've got a super majority of the key leaders, the organic leaders, and they're completely on board and helping make decisions and run the campaign, the chances that you're going to win and you do and you and you do what we call structure tests that show you, oh, we're only at 52 support today. Let's do another one. Oh, now we've picked up six percentage more points of thousands of workers in the unit. Um, we're doing endless structure tests, what we call structure tests. And how you do those? How do you find this out? How do you what? How do you do a structure test? Did we cover that? Didn't we talk about structure tests in an early segment? We must. Have. I don't think we actually got into how you do one. Or are these a focus? These aren't. These are more than focus oh, groups. Oh God, focus groups, my enemy. Oh, these are. Oh, I'm sorry, we did talk I mean, about strike, it. Okay, strike, I'm going to give a note. A strike is. A remind, remind, remind us. Okay, I mean, a, a strike is a structure test. It's just better not be your first one, right? That's the point. Um, you do a lot of what we call structure tests, which are not public. For as you know, and basically you do them until until you've got ninety percent or more unity and participation in the structure test. So a structure test, an early structure test, uh, in either a definitely in a non-union context where you're trying to unionize. Let's say the workers call and say, which is a common issue in every Amazon plant in America, it's too damn hot in here in the summer. Let's say that's the big complaint. Like workers are passing out in a hot factory because there's no AC and no fans because they don't give a crap. You know, Bezos couldn't care less if they dropped dead. Obviously they just killed him in a tornado and didn't let him go home when there was a giant tornado coming right at their factory. So uh, so let's say that the, the, what we're hearing from workers when we're talking to them early on in the campaign is it's really hot in the summer, workers are passing out. Well, a smart approach is, hey, let's, let's put together a petition that says we demand air conditioners and fans. And we're gonna pass that petition. Doesn't cost a penny. We're gonna go photocopy it at a you know, Kinko's or fill in the blank copy shop down the road. Um, we're gonna you know, write space for their name, their signature, you know, their phone number if we're smart because we want their cell phone. And we're gonna you know, put out a maximum three to four sentences. Oh my God, the more leftish someone is, the worse they are, they're incapable of writing a short petition, incapable. So note to leftists, you do not put every fact in your petition. You put two or three sentences for all good people. These are two or three sentences long. Come to our trainings, you'll see them. Read my books, you'll see them. Maximum a couple of sentences. And it's, it would say, hey, workers passed out last summer. Summer is approaching. We want to start. We demand right now that there's going to be, you know, good circulating air. Um, and you start to move that petition. And who do you hand it to? You hand it to the people that you think are the 
organic leaders, the informal leaders. And it's your first test of, are they actually the right people in their unit and their shift? And you know the answer to that because they come back with what? A majority of signatures from the workers in their area. And you know they're a leader if they come back with a majority of workers and they get that done in a few days, right? You're like, okay, check. We've got the right leader in that unit. If they come back and, they, and, and the instructions are very clear, each leader does only their unit and only their shift, right? That's what you're trying to do to figure out, do you have the right person? Because you've got to literally have each unit and each shift covered to get to the kind of numbers I'm describing. And that is exactly what the LA teachers, the Chicago teachers, 1199 taught me and everyone who still went and, and Unite here, you know, every everyone in the unions who's still winning and striking, winning organized campaigns and striking are doing structure tests. All right, let's go to the bigger picture conversation now. So I said at the end of the last segment uh, that, you know, unionization may be way down uh, in the private sector. I think in the U.S., what is it? Barely 6% uh, yeah. in the private sector, yeah. maybe 10 or something, a little bit 11 more. 11 change when you add them all up, yeah. Yeah. But it's very strategic where a lot of these unionized workers are, They're, you know, in ports, uh, most of the air, airlines, uh, telecommunications, truck drivers. I mean, it's extremely strategic and powerful 6% in the private sector and, and certainly critical areas of the public sector. So, you know, when people look at Jesus, even when you elect some progressives to Congress, they just get totally swamped, you know, the power of money and, uh, you know, in terms of the elections. So not in any way minimizing the importance to have to fight on that front, as uh, now I'm quoting someone named Jane McAlevey, because the, there's real power in the power of the strike. Um, so talk about what that means in terms of society, but also how do you get to a situation where the power of the strike can be used in a more political way? Yeah. Great. So urgent, this topic. First, let me start at a, a sort of illustration of it going back to one state at a time, and then I'm going to come to how, how we should have been all this year striking the bejesus out of every single worker that we could to put the kind of pressure on so that what they call build back better or any got passing labor law reform, voting rights reform in the United States so that black and brown people can vote again. I mean, every major issue in this country, in the United States, required more power than was put into trying to win legislation in 2021. There was very little one. Now you're going to hear a whole narrative thing on how much we won. You know, I don't give a brass ass. Compared to what was expected to be done this year, crumbs, crumbs, frankly. Yes, we won this and that. And you know what I mean? It's just the infrastructure bill. Great. Of course, we won the, what they, what they now call the regular infrastructure bill. You know, of course, you can get the Republicans to vote for paving some more roads and building a bridge in their state, for God's sakes. The point about the infrastructure bill originally was that it was going to do much more in the reconciliation process and Congress was going to do much more. Okay. So when, you know, when you trust behind the scenes negotiations in a, where the deck is stacked against you and you've got no outside strategy, right? I wrote a piece in July called Labor Needs an Outside Strategy when it was clear they were just doing insider baseball every day again. Um, you get the result this December that we just got, which is workers were screwed. Um, and and the, the, the issue is not just 
okay, workers are screwed again. That, I mean, that's bad enough, but it's setting up that we're probably going to lose the 2022 elections in the United States, setting up Trump or Trumpers returning to this country. So there's a lot at stake. The planet's on fire, literally, it's burning down. We know that. We've got a short clock. Um, and frankly, the small d democracy is fraying at the seams and about to get even more challenged. So what's at stake here seems pretty fundamental and pretty serious. What we could and should have been doing was figuring out how many places we could start creating the kind of chaos overlaid by key congressional districts and key U.S. Senate districts. Where are the places that we needed to start figuring out how to get some strikes going that could actually cause enough pressure to force the people for whom the Joe Mansions and the Kirsten Cinemas and everyone who's in the way in the United States, whether they're D's or R's, how could we put enough pressure on the corporations who are the ones telling those elected leaders not to, you know, to hold the line against all things good? Um, can I get? Can I give you an example? Yeah. If you go to the port of Baltimore, piles and piles, enormous mountains of coal for export. If the workers said, okay, Joe Manchin, your coal ain't going nowhere until you are supporting such and such. Is that what you're talking about? Well, yeah, but we're so far from that. That wasn't exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, that'd be great. That's a vision I... On the East Coast port, sorry, that union's not doing that. So, you know, I'm trying. I'm grounded in realism. Your example is is actually real, but that one would be a particular challenge, just given who that union has been for a long time. Um, so, there. The point is, and that's what people will do. Oh well, they'll never do that. The point is, they will. Look at the John Deere workers. We just watched ten thousand workers defy their national union, go on strike in a supermajority strike, stay on strike for a greater set of demands than their own national union was willing to get for them. Two times in a row, 10,000 workers said no to that bad agreement. Get back in there and do better. That's what we need to see happening all across the country to force some of the national unions to start taking action that only the rank and file is gonna force them to take. But going back to your example, I wanna give two. So in theory, your example is perfect. That's exactly right. That was just a hard one because I know the reality of that possibility. But there are plenty of possibilities is the point. Um, so, and I've got a little bit, probably too late and not relevant airing wise, but I've got a piece coming out in a matter of days in the nation where I sort of lay this case out. What's it going to look like to create the kind of crisis that is going to force the hand of Congress? Because obviously Biden asking nicely in the progressive caucus, being patient and asking nicely isn't going to do it. So what I understand from past fights is how are we going to get enough pressure on the political elite and the employer class, the corporations that are holding back the Joe Mansions, the cinemas, the whatever, right? They're not, they're not, I mean, they're taking their orders from corporations right now. So how are we going to put the pressure on corporations so that they're going to say uncle and they're going to, they're going to call, not the progressive caucus, not Joe Biden. He needs to hear from the coal industry and the larger fossil fuel industry. That's who's going to tell him time to change your vote. The heat is too great. So your example is absolutely correct illustratively, right? If we're, the coal can't go out and it's not moving, they're going to be in crisis and call. Um, but there are a lot of examples of creating the kind of chaos, the pharmaceutical industry in cinema's case, the fossil fuel industry. There's, there's, you have to start to do a power analysis to look at where do, the, where do those interests come together? Let's say 
as you just said, in Baltimore, Baltimore is not in the state of West Virginia last I looked, right? So how can we get influence on a mansion from a different state where workers have strategic power? We've done that in hospital strikes and in other congressional fights um, multiple times. So we, we have to look for, here's a good example like, that I can talk about. I'm, I'm stumbling because there are examples that I can't talk about, about things that are coming. But one that I can talk about is that there's over 100,000 grocery workers whose contracts expire this spring, spring of 2022. 100,000, actually in excess of 100,000, I'm using a safe number. And they're in a handful of locals up and down the West Coast. So from Seattle down to San Diego, uh, there's going to be over 100,000 workers who, who have smart local, local union leaders who have lined up their contracts to expire at the same time and our biggest grocery chains, two of the biggest grocery chains in the United States. Well, what, what, hmm, what interesting result might it have when 100,000 plus workers shut down grocery stores in this moment in this country? And when the demand is, uh, they're not going to go back. Now, they're not going to say this because you can't do that. And I'm not even suggesting they would, but I'm just saying when you have a walkout of that scale and that size and you begin to realize that you can cause incredible chaos and power um, across the employer class, the employer class is complete private equity. It's they're all mixed up together. It's like a shareholder of a cold company is a shareholder of a grocery store company because they're actually owned by some private equity venture capital guy at the top, right? I mean, the money is so intermixed at this point in this country. It's amazing. So we need that level of strategic disruption in key markets. And I'm going to argue, even if it's a mix of blue states and some red states, right? Some of the biggest education strikes like West Virginia were the red states. But if we can begin to just shut down sectors of the economy and create the kind of chaos, I mean, frankly, even in theory, shutting down all the schools can create a hell of a lot of crisis we've learned. We've learned it the hard way with the pandemic. Before the pandemic, we learned it through education strikes. That can just create its own chaos and uncle, right? I mean, in Los Angeles, they said to the Los Angeles teachers, you cannot bring up uh, like non-bargaining issues in the strike. Like that's a legal technical thing. And so they said, okay, we won't, right? There were legal charges put against them. They had demands around getting ICE immigration out of the public schools. They had, they had like big political demands in their strike. And in the lead up to it, the employers said, that's not legal, drop your demands. And eventually the union leadership, who's very smart, realized, okay, what the hell? We'll drop the demands right now. And then once we're out on a supermajority strike, we'll bring them back. And that's exactly what they did, right? So um, fine, we can play your game. We'll drop them. And then we're going to bring them back out. You know, if we can get 34,000 people out and 75,000 members of the community marching with us every day, then we're going to have a rediscussion about what's on the effing table, right? That's what a supermajority strike does. Suddenly, the entire power structure changes. So what's needed and what we haven't seen in a long time we can't get to a general strike. Let me just start right there. You know, people are like, general strike. And I'm like, Jesus, we could, you know, first learn to strike a nursing home, okay, before you make that demand. Only people demanding general strikes are people who have never run a strike in their life. We're far from a general strike. The United States have never actually had a full general strike ever. And guess what? We have won many historical, many congressional policy victories in this country on the back of a handful of seriously well-run mini, what I call mini general strikes in key labor markets. So we need to have mini general strikes. That's what the 100,000 grocery workers are setting up 
in a handful of places right now, right? Key strategic places. Um, and you start to look at, you start to analyze all the contracts that are expiring in the United States in 2022, which I have been doing for a little while. And you start to look at where are those strikes or where could we get strikes going uh, in 2022? And you start to realize that there's, you know, a couple many thousand opportunities of contracts expiring. And I'm talking about a lot of contracts, right? If you actually go into a war room and you make a map of where are all the contracts expiring in 2022, then you look at the political challenges in this country about who's in the way. Then you start to look at who are the financiers, who are the related shareholders um, of the places where workers could go on strike. Where do we need to create chaos? Where do we need to create political opportunity? Where do we need to strike and create chaos where we can versus where we can't, right? Like the port, Sorry, in Baltimore, not going to happen in the short term. Uh, we'd have to change the whole leadership there to do that. So we're okay. Well, that's well, that's actually my next question. Right. So let me, let's just finish on this one to say how we won the National Labor Relations Act to begin with. How we won uh, the the most important pieces of congressional legislation in the history of the United States was on the back of workers challenging their national unions going out on unsanctioned strikes in 1933 and 1934 to put the pressure on some guy named FDR way back then to do what he did. Now, I'm not saying we go back. No one wants to go back to 1933, for God's sakes. They were pretty much there. I mean, the right wing in the United States is pretty much getting us to 1933, last I looked. So um, it's going to take a similar approach of workers defying, in some cases, as the John Deere workers did, their own national union's recommendations. But they can't do that unless they know how to organize to a supermajority level. The John Deere workers pulled it off. It was incredible. That's the model going into 2022 of what we need to see, because national unions, as we know, tend to be very risk averse. They've got like the smaller the percentage of workers they quote unquote represent, words I don't even enjoy. Um, but the 6% the number that you mentioned a few minutes ago has led to like decades of risk aversion by national unions trying to just protect and hold on to what they have. And we are so past protecting and holding on to what you have. I mean, you know, we are going to lose the United States of America in th by this time next year. I fear for the kind of interview that you and I might be doing. After November of 2022, if either the House or the Senate and the numbers I'm looking at suggest the Democrats will lose both the House and the Senate. On the current page, yeah, I, I have a series of interviews coming out with Tom Ferguson in the next week or two, and it's all it's about a perfect a perfect storm. Uh, it's devastating. Blowing. It's devastating, and the only thing that's going to save us, the only possibility of how to both affect November of 2022's election in this country, but let's say they take it, then we're really down to supermajority strikes. I mean, if they take the final piece of political control of this country that they intend to take. Uh, they've got the Supreme Court locked. They believe they're going to, you know, if they take the House, if they take the House, they're going to take the presidency because they're going to seat, you know, illegitimate electors in 2024. I mean, it's really, this is, this is a slow moving crush of democracy that we're watching happen. This is, this is not a surprise anymore. Trump tried it. <laughs> That's what's coming out from the January 6th hearings. We literally know what they're going to do and yet the unions are reluctant to put, to encourage workers to go out on strike to save the entire damn 
country at this point. So I well, it's way it's way beyond the country because it's going to be an administration, a Congress, a Supreme Court of climate de crisis deniers, climate absolutely. science deniers. Absolutely. So you know, if if there was ever even a glimmer of hope of hitting, uh, you know, not getting past one point five, we're we're already past that. Yep. Not getting past two, we're probably past that. Yep. But to to have an administration that where you can't even talk about climate science. That's right. And and we're in that direction. Okay, we're getting near near yeah. the end. Um, yeah. So let me just to pick up something you said. So one of the things that's obstructing this process is clearly in in too many unions, but not all, but too many, there is leadership that is so tied to the corporate Democrats that is so strike fight real struggle aversive for workers in those unions. Is it the same issue? Like the methodology works, you know, get organized to take over your union. Yes. Simple answer um, in our last few minutes. Yes. And, and you know, uh, I wrote a book called No Shortcuts for a reason. There isn't, there isn't a way around it. The John Deere workers just showed us the way. They literally just showed us the way. Well, how did that work? If they, if they rejected a contract recommended by the union leadership, then who was doing all this organizing? Uh, that You know, there's a legacy, right? That's a legacy. There's a legacy union there. The workers were angry in an auto plant, which is really different than a grocery store. I just want to paint how difficult organizing can be. You know, when you're working... They were, a, they were, I call them a legacy shop in the sense that that's, it's like a real, I mean, old fashioned, it's in feels to me, you know, like a, a, an old, well-organized shop with real shop stewards, uh, with deep relationships. Those workers have been in those plants together for generations. In the interviews with them, you would hear them say things like, well, we got a bigger raise offer in the second contract, but what we're fighting for is to end the two-tier system because I work in the plant that my father worked in or that my mother worked in and who's gonna come after me in this plant is gonna be my kid, right? So these are those kind of facilities. That's really different than a grocery store where Jesus, you're gonna go work there for a few months and you're gonna realize it's crap pay and the pandemic and I'm gonna get sick here and you're just gonna quit. You know what I mean? So there's a very big difference in a long established shop and their ability to rank and file. They've got the relationships and other shop stewards like, they had it on lockdown. The workers did amazing organizing. That was worker-led organizing, but in an existing shop with real relationships that were durable for multiple decades in some cases, right? And they got together on their own and said, what do we think about this recommended agreement the first time? And pissed a bunch of pissed off workers, organized their co-workers and said, show up to the ratification meeting. Let's ask, you know, the people who negotiated this agreement what the heck they were doing when we told them what our big demand was, which was ending two-tier. Um, and then they summarily uh, voted down the agreement and they called up the next one at the next local and the next one at the next local. And they did old fashioned organizing. This is my point about trusting workers. They're actually really smart. That's much harder to do when you don't yet have an organized shop. Right. That's the that's challenging. But we I, I mean, I think look at the John Deere workers as an incredible example. And by the way, Chicago teachers, I mean, we go right down the line, the L.A. teachers. I mean, every union that we've been talking about in this show are unions where a group of rank and file workers in the last decade got really pissed off about their conditions and challenged their union leadership and took it over, won elections, right? Either rejected a contract, as in the case of Deere, or in the case of Los Angeles and Chicago, just took on 
the power structure, and they had to do what first? Organizing and structure tests. To even know in Chicago, I outline this in depth in my book, No Shortcuts. You know, it's like 35 rich pages of like a bunch of progressive activists don't like what's going on. Their schools are being closed on them. Conditions are horrible. You know, they're all community activists. The mayor announces they're going to, you know, Rahm Emanuel announces he's going to close a bunch of schools, black schools, of course. And all these progressive teachers are like, oh, my God. They go to a bunch of community meetings to say, you know, you guys got to help us. You know, how can we help you stop the closing of the schools? This is, you know, I tell this whole story in the book. And literally the community leaders are like, Jesus, take your goddamn union over. I mean, fix it. Where's the union in this fight over the Chicago schools? And all of a sudden the progressives were like, oh, it would be helpful if our union was opposing the closing of public schools. You know what I mean? And so bingo. But they, what did they not do? This is a, my, my parting shot before I have to run. What did they not do? They did not just throw a bunch of names on a slate and say, hey, let's just run and see if we win. They did not do that. They did serious organizing. They began by doing things like the petitions I'm describing. They set up structure tests to understand if and when they decided to challenge their very large union's leadership for office, they were going to have a fair shot of winning. That's what I call organizing, and the rank and file did it. Now, by the way, a bunch of smart people. I mean, they took classes, they read books, right? I mean, this is fine, but that's just like the John Deere workers. So for all the workers who say, oh, we can never change our union, I'm sorry. There's too many examples of workers who have. It takes a lot of work, takes a lot of energy, but the planet's burning down, the democracy is ending, and it's time to fight like hell with a strategy and a method. All right. So if you want to learn the strategy and the method, Jane has invited everybody watching these interviews. Get 20 people together and you can join these the next session of classes or one of the ones in the future. Not just get 20. You got to commit to all the classes. But yes. No, I mean, you got 20 people together. Commit to all the classes. And it doesn't matter if I have it correctly. You could be in a workplace unionized or not. You could be at a school, a high school, a university. You could be in the community. You can be in a church. Get If you want to get organizing and get organized, you can join Jane's uh, course. Uh, how do they do it? Really? What do they? Let's OK. I got 20 people together. How do I let you know that? Uh, the easiest place for them to go as a reference is to my website, but they can also, just because your na my name is attached to this video, and there they will find uh, how you sign up for the courses. We've just announced the next one, which starts on the 10th of May, so they've got time to go build the right team. Don't just grab 20 people, by the way. Think really hard. You know what I mean? Like, literally, sit down with a couple of people, make a plan. You want to unionize your workplace? Oh, my God. That, those are, that's the most exciting uh, folks coming into the course, or you want to run for office and win or whatever it is you want to do. You want to build to a strike. You want to save the planet. We have a ton of climate justice activists increasingly taking the courses, but don't just grab, you know, think hard about like what 20 people, it's a workplace. What can I get a spread of departments? Who do I know in a different department? Who do I know in a different shift? Like make a plan with a couple of people and start to make a bigger plan. You can show up with 100 people. You can show up with 400 people. The UCU, one of the big education union in um, uh, in the United Kingdom, when they showed up to the course a year ago, now this is an organized union, but they realized, oh, hey, there's some great organizing techniques here. Let's sign up. They signed up with in just in excess of 500 people, and they had one facilitator for every 20 people out of the more than 500 people. By the way, they just had a hell of a round of strikes um, and won some. I'm not saying that we deserve credit at all. Just noting 
that even very well established good unions who sort of have like maybe withered, you know, in the last bunch of years are like, this is a great place to send the members to. But if you don't have a union, if you have a union that you're not very happy with um, because you want to make it better, if you're a climate justice activist, yeah, get get upwards of 20, get 20, get 40, get 50, you know, get people who are serious about learning how to organize and sign up for the course. It's free. Well, I'm going to. All right. Thanks very much, Jane. Very nice to see you again. And uh, good. And we'll, we'll start another series in a few months when you finish your book. <laughs> thank you, Paul. All right, and thank you for joining us on the analysis.news and subscribe and share and all of that. Thanks again for joining us.